Father, we praise you for your word, and we thank you that you allow us the opportunity to study it, to be um, sitting at your feet. And Lord, it allows us to see your greatness and all the beautiful things that are about you and what you have done for us. You are a kind and loving God, and you move on behalf of your namesake for our good. Father, I ask that you bless this morning and that you would speak through me and bring understanding of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm Julie Wesselman, if you don't know me, and it's my turn to do the lecture. So I'm going to start our passage today, which was Colossians 3, 5 through 14, and I'm going to be using a phrase in this lecture that really isn't in this letter, but it is used by Paul in Romans and by John in his epistle. The phrase that Christians are often called, and it's called children of God, or the singular, child of God. And Paul uses it in Romans 8, 16. He says, the spirit bears witness with us, our spirit, that we are children of God. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. As believers, we are now part of God's family and thus should consider ourselves this way. I begin this intro this way because our passage has to do with our identity and our responses and responsibilities as a child of God. So I've titled this lecture, Child of God, and I've divided the passage into three parts, and they are identity, our response, and our responsibility. So let's start our first division, our identity. So what does this passage say about who we are? Well, let's start with the indicatives that we found in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Verse 10 tells us that we have a new self and that this new self is being renewed into the image of our creator, who we know is Christ, because we saw that in chapter 1. Verse 11 tells us that Christ is all and in all. You have the spirit of Christ living in you. You are united with Christ. Verse 12 tells us that we're chosen of God, holy, beloved. And then in 13, he tells us that we are forgiven. Paul is saying, this is who you are. Do you see yourself this way? Do you operate out of this identity? Paul wants the Colossians and us as well to operate out of this identity. To think this way about ourselves, for that's how the Christian life is lived. He begins this passage with the thought of identity in mind. He uses that word, therefore, in verse 5. That word is telling us that before we consider what Paul is about to tell us, we have to have some kind of thinking going on in our mind about what he has said before. And we know from our studying of the past two chapters, we have seen wonderful realities of who Christ is, what he has done. Last week, we saw that Christ is our life, and all that we do is to revolve around him. We're to seek him and set our heart and mind on him. He is the one who will inform us of our identity. This is where it comes from. Paul has been pointing again and again that we have been saved through Christ, that we have been redeemed, rescued, 
given a new heart that is now capable of loving and worshiping God. He has, been, he has given us and placed us in a new kingdom. This is where that life of worship is to take place. In this kingdom, we are one of God's chosen children, and he considers us beloved and holy. So as a child of God, made in the image of God, we were all created to get our identity, our hope, our meaning and purpose, our understanding of life, our everyday motivation from God. Out of this reality is how we should think and function. So when Paul begins this section of scripture with therefore, he wants us to think and to respond out of our identity. You looked up in your homework, 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. These new realities that are coming, that are here, have come to us because we are new creatures in Christ. Our identities in Christ should be reflective of Christ. God is after renewal of his image in our everyday moments of life. Look at verse 10. This new self is to reflect Christ. How? In the way that he loved and worshipped God. In the way that he sought to do the will of God, that which is pleasing to God. Christ's focus was to please God, to glorify him in all that he did. And that should be our focus and our purpose as well. Renewal takes place through knowledge of Christ. That is why Paul is praying in the beginning of chapter 1 that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that we can walk in a manner worthy of God and to please him and to bear fruit. So the more we know of Christ and gain a deeper understanding of what he did in rescuing us from darkness and giving us a whole new identity, the more we will operate out of that identity. So take a look at last week. Did the reality of being a child of God impact the way you lived? Did it impact how you responded to those you live with? How much did your identity in Christ bring you hope? How much did it bring you meaning and purpose? And did it help you understand life? Ladies, we must fight to remember who we are in Christ, for this is the only way that we will be able to do what Paul is about to tell us to do. So the takeaway truth for this section is your identity in Christ is the new you. You are a chosen child of God, holy and beloved, created in the image of God, the one we are to reflect. This takes us to our second division, which is our response. In a nutshell, when we become a child of God, we are to hate sin. I'm going to read from verses 5 through 10, so follow along as I do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul mentions here a list of sins. Well, why these sins? Well, why sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? Well, he brings these up because they were common practices in this society, and they characterized the people in Colossae. But he points out in verse 7, too, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. He's saying, this is how you were. This is what you did. This is how you lived your life. These believers once lived this way. These sins characterized who they were. Sin is serious business, and it must be dealt with. It must be paid for either on the cross by Christ's death and resurrection, or it will be dealt with by the wrath of God for sinners who never repent. And that's why Paul brings up the point in verse 6. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. All sin is first against God before it is ever against another person. And Paul wants the Colossians to realize that these sins should not characterize their lives. It shouldn't be this way anymore. Why? Because they're a child of God. That is who they are. These sins should not characterize our life either. The sins that characterized you before Christ, they need to stop as well. They need to be put off. But as a child of God, Paul tells us to put to death what is earthly in you. We know that we are no longer under sin's rule or power. Why? Because we've been transferred. We've been rescued. We're in a new kingdom. Yet, so much of the time, we live as though we're in the old kingdom, where the old self is ruling the heart, pushing aside worship of God for worship of something other than God. And the Bible calls this response idolatry. The earthly that Paul is referring to is the rule of sin in our hearts. For out of the heart comes sin, the corrupt thinking, the evil desires and sinful behaviors. Paul says to put to death the sins of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Why? Because that heart is full of self-focus, it's self-absorbed pursuit of satisfaction in something other than God. And he sums it up as idolatry. Let's think for a minute. What is it meant by the term heart? Well, the Bible divides you into two parts. The outer man, which is your physical self, and the inner man, which is your spiritual self. And your spiritual self has a heart. It is the heart. It is you. And it is characterized by so many terms. And the Bible uses the word heart in 960 passages of scripture. The heart is you. It's the true you, the essential you. The heart is the steering wheel of your life. And the heart is always motivated, always controlled, ruled, shaped, and structured by a desire for something. That desire for something will set the agenda of your life. So if Christ is your life, and he is what you worship and love, that will become evident in the way you think, in the way you, how you feel, your affections, your behavior. If some other desire other than Christ is consuming your heart, we will see sin take place. Consider what the Bible says in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. Mark 7, 20 
20 to 23. Here Jesus says, what comes out of the heart is truly you. Jesus said that what proceeds out of the men is that is what defiles the men. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the men. The heart is where sin begins. It starts with displacing desire of God for desire for something other than God. To put sin off or to put it to death, as Paul says, we must deal with what's going on in our heart. And that's why Paul begins this section with identity. We are a new creature in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us so that we have new capacities to desire God, to love God, to worship God. And that's the means by which we are able to put sin off. And Paul wants these believers to deal with their sin. He wants us to deal with our sin. A child of God who has Christ at the center of their life will want to stop sinning. They will want to see changes take place in, their, in this new identity that will reflect Christ. And we have this hope of change because God promised in Romans 8, 29, he predestined believers to be conformed to his image. We see this here in Colossians as well in verse 10, that the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our new self will be renewed as we grow in understanding and knowledge of Christ. The more we know of Christ, the more we will want to be like him the more we will worship him and thus desire a life pleasing to God, worthy of God. Paul is telling them that these sins must not still characterize their lives. He says to put them to death and sums them up as idolatry, which is the root of all sin. There is no desiring for honoring God here. There is no worship of God taking place. We need to know this reality because Paul tells us to put to death sin, and we have to do so at the root, what is causing them. God is after our devotion and worship and living out our identity as a child of God. When the heart is ruled by sin, it will be revealed in the way that we think and what we desire and how we behave. Paul points this out in this reality in verses 8 and 9. Follow along. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This list of sin that Paul points out, here's a lot of things that we can see. There are expressions of sin, of what's ruling the heart. And these sins can also become a method by which we, the heart is using to get what it wants. For example, if there is a desire to be satisfied by sexual sin, and if something stands in the way of that desire being satisfied, you will see an eruption of maybe as anger. Perhaps you'll see it in words and malicious words and slanderous words. Perhaps obscenities will be heard. Whenever you see yourself expressing sinful behavior, you must trace it back to what is gripping your heart. What is ruling your heart? That sinful desire is pushing desire of God away, pushing worship of God away because it wants something more. And that's what Paul calls idolatry. 
Paul tells them that they must stop lying to one another. He points out once again that it was common practice of the old self. Lying should not characterize them now, and lying shouldn't characterize us either. So my question to you is, what sin is characterizing you? What sinful practices do you see in yourself that you have come to accept as normal, just, just who I am? Well, Paul is telling us as a child of God that we have to put that sin to death. Remember, the heart is con the control center of the human being. Whatever rules your heart will automatically exercise control over your desires, thoughts, words, and actions. So the takeaway truth for this section is sin begins in the heart and will displace worship of God for worship for something else. And it will show itself in our thoughts, behavior, and actions. We are to hate sin. We are to put it to death. So in our first division, we talked about we have to remember who we are in Christ. In this section, we just saw that we need to hate sin. We need to put it off. This moves us to our third division. Here, we will look at our responsibility. This is where we must have a right response when we do go to put off sin. Follow along as I read in verses 11 through 14. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive, and above all, put on love which binds everything in perfect harmony. Paul now moves on to how the new self should operate. As a child of God, the Holy Spirit will begin to produce fruit that will be evident in the new way that our heart is operating. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, and with that conviction, he will remind us of the gospel, all that we have been given in Christ. This is a kindness that will lead us to repentance. Are we turning away from that sin and a turning back to God? This new desire to honor God will be the means by which you will be able to put off that sin. When the fruit of righteousness is operating in the life of a child of God, unity will take place. When Christ is all to a believer and is operating in all believers, we will see unity, a harmony among even people groups that are not normally seen. Look at verse 11. Here is, it says, not Greek and Jew. You could say not circumcised and uncircumcised, not barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in, in all. Paul is saying in these types of differences in the world, you would not normally see a unity. You would not see them as equals. They, they wouldn't see themselves in that time period as equals. And that would not bring about a unity on its own. However, in Christ, we are seen first as a child of God. And we relate to one another as children of God. And we see no division. We see no social class or color or race. We see Christ. We see his identity. And that is what we operate off of. And this will begin to bring harmony and unity where you wouldn't normally see it. 
However, we know that this, this doesn't come easy. Why? Because we have prejudices. We tend to view things from our old self. Here's a situation that we would tend to say, you know, it's a situation or it's that person. That's the reason behind my sinful behavior, my sinful thinking. But we must remember that our behavior, it's rooted in our thoughts and motives of our heart. People in situations, they just happen to be the thing where our heart gets expressed. So what is the situation? Who are the people in your life that are prompting your heart to respond? And what kind of response is taking place? Does their heart respond out of their identity in Christ desiring to please God? Or does our heart respond out of the old identity, the old self, desiring to please self? You can know the answer by what's seen in your thinking, in your thoughts, in your behavior, in your actions. Paul wants us to know what is going on in our hearts so that we can know what we need to do. If sin is rising up in your heart, we must put it off. And Paul helps us in verse 12 on how to do that. Look at what he says at the beginning. He reminds them of their identity in Christ. He's called them chosen. You are a child of God. He calls them holy. Remember, this is what you can become. I've made it possible. And he calls them beloved. God has set his love on them when they didn't deserve it. It's there. And he wants us to think this way. All of this is a means to remind you of the gospel truths to help you to set your mind on Christ, to help you desire God, his will to please him more than to please ourselves. It is to help you live for God and not to live for yourself. Paul knows that our hearts must be consumed with God in order for us to displace sin, that he wants us to, to be reminded, oh yeah, this is who I am. Now go do this. So once your mind is back on God, Paul tells us what to put on, what we are to do. We are to think of the other person more than ourselves. That's how unity begins. We need to have compassionate hearts, he says. I don't know about you, but i got to cry out to God to help me, to give me a compassion towards somebody that's different or perhaps difficult and hard. And then I seek to be kind in obedience. And we need to be humble and meek. So again, I cry out to God, make me humble, help me to be meek, to have a right perspective of who I am. So I think more highly of myself than I should. Pride's got to be put down. And then I seek to be kind and patient towards people. Patience is that needed response because in verse 13, Paul tells us how to respond to someone who's perhaps weak or perhaps hard to be around. He tells us to bear with one another, to be patient. But if they've sinned against you and you have a complaint against them, we must be ready to forgive. Well, how does someone get ready to forgive? We go back to the gospel where we see how Christ forgave us. Christ was willing to forgive me my sin against him when I confessed it and repented from it. So we too must remember that the grace given to us, we soak in it, we think on it, we ponder that mercy and grace, and this will help our hearts ready to forgive when the opportunity arises. Next, Paul tells us what will bring perfect harmony in the relations that we find ourselves in. Verse 14 says, put on love. Love is what God is calling us to do. 
There are two great commandments. The first is that I love God above all else. The second is that I would love my neighbor as myself. We must seek to love God as our first pursuit. Only then are we able to love our neighbor. Real love of others is rooted in worship and love of God. Well, how does one put on love? We start with the gospel because it shows us how God loved us. It is an example for us to follow. In your homework, you were given a definition by Paul Tripp that he came up with that he says comes from how Christ was demonstrated his love towards us. Let me repeat it here. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. It's definitely not how we like to love. That person better be deserving and he better pay it back. That's how we tend to think. And it shouldn't cost me a thing to help, right, or to do. So, but God is saying, this is how I loved you. It was a sacrifice for me. I gave my son on the cross. I did it for your good when you didn't deserve it. And there was nothing that you can do to repay that kindness. That's biblical love. And Paul is saying, that's what we need to put here. We need to put that love on. This is going to bring unity. It will be displayed in these relationships. So you see, God has an agenda to take place in your life. It's called sanctification, growing in holiness. And he has given you everything you need for this to take place. So ask yourself, ask yourself what are your typical responses in situations and relationships that you find yourself in? What sin must you put to death? And what are you seeking in return to put on? The fruit that God would like to see come about in those situations and relationships that would be honoring him. What would that look like? What would be pleasing to him? The takeaway truth for this section is that God not only calls us to put off sin, but we are also to be responsible to put on the righteousness that is displayed in Christ, trusting in the Holy Spirit's power to live out this new self. Let me recap our three points. We are to remember our identity in Christ, we are to trust the Holy Spirit to put off sin and to put on righteousness. This is how we live out the new self. Well, let me take the last few minutes here to share a recent example of how this reality of fighting sin and righteousness took place in my own life. A few weeks ago, Ken and I were on vacation with three other couples. Now, I really wanted my friends to have a good time, but I was also desiring a good time as well you know, to be comfortable and to not have any difficulties that would prevent me from having my comfort denied. After all, I was on vacation. Well, God knows that I have a tendency towards idolatry of comfort and ease. Yet he has been working in this area to help me to see it and to keep comfort in its rightful place. But I'm also blind to just how strong that desire can be in my life, and I can walk around as though it's not a problem for me. On the first day of this vacation, we needed to pick a stateroom. We were on a boat. And when I saw the master bedroom, my heart immediately began to desire it. And my first thought was, I need to get Ken to get us this bedroom. <laughs> well, my sin was coveting this room, and I decided that Ken and I should have this room. In fact, we needed this room to make this vacation perfect. On and on went my reasoning. Now, no one would know that this was going on. After all, I had been a 
Christian for decades, and I was keeping it under the radar. But you know what? When sin is brewing and it doesn't, isn't dealt with, it's going to be seen. And my self-focus was there, and I was determining that we should have this room. Well, how did this sin reveal itself? Well, I sought to get Ken to pick the room for us. You know, not with so many words, just with looks and expressions <laughs> that would tell him what my heart wanted. After all, I didn't want my friends to know that I was coveting a room, right? Well, long story short, we ended up with the smallest room with the lights of the breaker panel and fuses lighting up the room. And we were slated to share the bathroom in the master bedroom. I was not happy. Well, that first night, I was angry with Ken <laughs> because I knew he was going to pick this room. Why? Well, God has worked in his life to care and love others more than himself and to take this room was a way that he could serve his friends. Well, there I was lying on the bed in our stateroom Wanting to be mad at Ken, wanting to punish him, to give him the silent treatment. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> wanting him to serve me and do my bidding, to give me what I wanted, and to make me look good in the process. Well, we were in our own beds now. There was no changing it, but yet my anger was still there. So as I laid there, I was confronted once again of my self-focus my love of comfort, and I knew it was wrong. I knew I needed to put it off. But, you know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. That sin felt so strong, and it gripped me so tight that I seemed powerless to do anything about it. But by God's mercy, he has me growing in the gospel, and he has me soaking in scripture, and the Holy Spirit began to convict me of this sin. He began to remind me of his kindness of his mercy. He reminded me of who I am in him. And as those truths began to enter my mind, as I began to ponder them, my heart began to soften. And I began to see that this sin needed to be dealt with. It needed to be put off. And I had power to do it because of who was in me. So that night, I prayed that the Lord would fill my mind continually with his truth about himself that I might worship him and not myself, that I would let the love of God help me die to this sin and to truly be willing to love my husband and my friends. Ladies, God was so good to me that night as he helped me put that sin off. That would have ruined this trip, not only for myself and Ken, but probably for my friends as well. As I remembered who I am in Christ, I am a child of God, full of the Holy Spirit, it makes me capable of worshiping God in the hardest of moments. It helps me to love him, and, and that becomes the means by which I am able to turn away from sin and to turn away from love of comfort, which is idolatry, and back to loving God. As we leave this room, let us remember to live out our identity, seeking to put off sin and seeking to put on righteousness by the power of the Spirit that lives in you. Let me close with prayer. Father, thank you that you have indeed given us everything that we need to live a life pleasing to you. Thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit that is the power to help us to remember who you are 
enables us to love you, enables us to die to sin and to put on righteousness. We praise you and worship you because you are a good, merciful, wonderful God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.